everyone, and to the Federalist Society, and to Crowell and Mooring for hosting, hosting us today. Um, this is one of my favorite topics. It's something that's very near and dear to my heart. I spent a lot of my career focusing on this. Uh, but it's no accident that uh, it's something that the FTC has focused quite a bit on, because we are an agency that does consumer protection and antitrust. And the occupational licensing uh, kind of is at the intersection of those two issues, where very often these kind of restraints on entry to a profession uh, are put forth as uh, necessary for consumer protection reasons. So I think we're particularly well placed as an agency to, to think about that and to say, you know, does that, does that make sense uh, to us? Uh, so, th so the issue with occupational licensing, I think, has really come to the forefront because occupational licensing uh, has exploded. So going back uh, to the 1950s, uh, studies suggest that about uh, fewer than 5% of occupations required a license. Uh, and today, that number is approaching 30%. So what's changed in that time period? Um, and the, the number of occupations and the types of occupations that licensing has extended to has gotten, I think, you know, beyond where we can say, well, you know, of course you want your doctor to be licensed, you want your, you know, um, you know, someone who's doing a health and safety related thing to be, to be licensed, but we have cases now where um, florists are licensed, where interior designers are licensed, where hair braiders are, are licensed. Uh, and so that's, you start to say, well, what is the rationale for that? Why is this happening? Uh, and that is sort of where the antitrust side of the analysis comes into play. And I've, uh, w one way I've kind of characterized this is we, as antitrust enforcers, we need to be alert certainly to private anti-competitive conduct, but the actions of the government can also be anti-competitive, and in a way that is uh, a lot uh, less likely to be eroded by market dynamics. So um, I often call it the bro what I call the brother may I problem. And it's where uh, you need your competitor's permission to enter the market. So that's w one of the issues that we've seen where we have um, uh, boards of active market participants saying, you know, well, you need this license or, you know, uh, the practice of, for our North Carolina dental case that we won in the Supreme Court, they had said, well, the practice of uh, dentistry now includes tooth whitening. In the, state, in the state of North, North Carolina. Um, so what are, what are some of the problems here? I think the problems are, are manifold. One, one of them certainly is uh, anti-competitive problem where you say, well, consumers may be paying more for a service or have fewer choices or there may be less innovation happening because of these onerous licensing requirements. But there's also an impact on, on workers where workers have lost, um, you know, the ability to, to enter a field more freely. Um, I see Clark, <coughs> Clark Neely back there. Clark has paid wonderful attention to this issue, and Institute for Justice has just done fantastic work in this area. Uh, but I think that's one, one of the, the issues here is what about, what about the, the individual worker and their ability, um, even if they have a skill that we all agree requires a license, if they are moving from state to state, they have to undergo that licensing all, all over again. Now, certainly, that, that isn't necessarily an FTC antitrust issue. You know, we have focused more on where you've got an active market participant saying, you know, you, you can't compete with, with me. Um, but um, on our advocacy role at the FTC, that's where we've tried to talk to states and really even other parts of the federal government about some of, some of these issues. Because they are hitting certain populations 
quite a bit uh, more um, onerously than others. And so one is, uh, believe it or not, military spouses. Members of the military move a lot. They get deployed around, you know, different places around the country. And a lot of times the trailing spouse has a licensed, um, a job that requires a license. And they um, have to get re-licensed, recertified, pay these fees, undergo tons of training, even if they've been active in the, in the field already. And it has led to, um, I think it's one of the contributors to the fact that you've got um, an unemployment rate of almost 20% in, in, that, in that population. Um, so that's why I launched my Economic Liberty Task Force at the FTC. I, I see it as a, um, an attempt to shine a real spotlight on this issue. Um, certainly we can continue to bring enforcement actions where, where appropriate, but it's mainly an advocacy role. Then uh, I talk often about it being a coalition of the willing, because I think a lot of groups, uh, consumer organizations, you mentioned the bipartisan appeal of this, uh, has um, you know, extended to, to a lot of, you know, the, the interest in this topic to, to a lot of different areas. And I've worked with uh, states. Um, Governor Scott Walker and I did a joint op-ed uh, on this issue. So I, I think we're at a particularly good time to, to make progress uh, on this issue. But, but the, the problem is, um, you know, the lack of competition, the higher prices, lower innovation, uh, but also the effects uh, on, the, on the workers. Thank you. Um, Sarah, we, we're really interested to hear from the state's perspective on the occupational licensing issues that the acting chairman. Um, okay, well, thank you uh, to the Federal Society and Cruel and Mooring and George Mason for inviting me to be on this panel today to be the spoiler on the panel. Um, I'd like to start with a disclaimer that the opinions I express today are only mine. They don't reflect necessarily the opinions of General Mark Herring or the Virginia AG's office or any of the other participants in the National Association of Attorneys General. Um, and it is a little odd for me um, because at 95% of the time, I and my antitrust counterparts in the other state AG offices are antitrust enforcers, like the federal agencies that we work with quite often, the FTC and DOJ. But in this one little area, we flip and we become defense attorneys for state boards and state agencies that are accused of anti-competitive behavior because we're the antitrust experts in the state. And um, so being the state apologist on this panel is a little backwards to me. But so is the position of uh, otherwise uh, staunch state rights advocates like Senator Mike Lee and Senator Ted Cruz. Um, but we will talk about their occupational licensing bill in a minute. So my personal perspective from the state side is that I see a lot of value to this wider philosophical discussion about whether too many occupations require licenses. I also basically agree with the Supreme Court's decision in NC Dental. But at the end of the day, it should be left up to the states to decide how to structure their economies, how to structure their governments, and how to provide for the health, safety, and welfare of their citizens. I applaud the FTC's efforts to educate state legislatures and others about the dangers to the national economy of too much licensing, and I support their enforcement efforts. However, I do not support the federal government's attempts to preempt states' abilities to decide these issues for themselves or to dangle state action immunity as a carrot in order to coerce states into providing active supervision in the manner it sees fit or into adopting its philosophy about the appropriate professions to license. Under current case law, principles of federalism allow states to decide which occupations they will license 
as opposed to professions that only require certification, registration, or have no restrictions at all. And once a state legislature has authorized a licensing scheme with a board of active market participants as board members, the only question that remains in order for the board and its members to receive state action immunity are whether they meet the two prongs of MidCal, which is one, was the board following a clearly articulated and affirmatively expressed state policy to displace competition, and two, whether the board was actively supervised by a disinterested state official to ensure the board's actions were consistent with that policy. There is some ambiguity in the incidental opinion about whether the active supervisor only has to determine that the board's actions were consistent with state policy or whether they have to go beyond that to look to see whether it was unduly burdensome. But there is no requirement that the active supervisor inquire into whether the board used the least restrictive alternative to achieve the legislature's goal. And there is certainly no ability for the active supervisor or the state courts to disregard the state legislature's intent to displace competition in favor of a licensing scheme. Moreover, states could easily decide to get rid of all of their state boards and switch to um, the oversight of licensed occupations from the boards to, to, to traditional, sorry, state agencies with full-time salaried state employees. That gets rid of the need for active supervision, but has many disadvantages, uh, the most obvious being that it would add millions to a state's budget to employ all those people, because state board members currently serve with no pay in most cases. It would also not necessarily change the state legislature's philosophy about which occupations to license, while making it harder to actually maintain an antitrust challenge against the state. And while it would take care of the problem of board members acting in their individual self-interest, it would not address a different problem, which is regulatory capture of the state employees who start sympathizing with the people and the industries that they regulate. Finally, I would add that a very large majority of the work of occupational regulatory boards does not restrict competition in any way. Board members who practice in the profession being regulated are usually the best people to evaluate standard of care cases. Many cases involve ethics violations or behavioral standards of licensees such as medical licensees who operate while intoxicated or take sexual improprieties with their patients or lawyers who dip into their escrow funds. And while a licensing regime itself may restrict competition, most individual licensing decisions are ministerial and involve no discretion on the part of the board members. Either the applicant checks the boxes for the objective criteria to receive a license or she doesn't. In that case, it really seems massively unfair to subject the board, or even worse, to subject the individual board members to potential treble damage liability for a decision that the st state legislature made and that the board members were statutorily required to follow. Thank you. Uh, I in particular really appreciate, um, you know, the diversity of views. Again, we want to have a conversation on these. And so, um, you know, I'm hoping we'll have a dialogue. And any thoughts from the other speakers? Uh, well, well I'd, I'd like to, to weigh in on, on sure. your points. And I think I, we agree on many, many things. Um, I also, you know, uh, I'm sensitive to the fact that we operate in a federal system. Uh, and that the states are sovereign, mm -hmm. and they can ta they can take these actions. I think that there's a twofold question here, though: is um, should they be taking these actions? Right? I, I care a lot about liberty, mm -hmm. and I <clears throat> I want to advocate that before any 
before any policymaker, whether it's at the federal level or, or the state level. And I think that's a lot of, of what we're trying to do here is to say, is this really, you know, um, uh, best for your um, citizens? It's a true application of public choice theory, right, where you've got concentrated benefit to the uh, providers, and they're going to lobby and say, you know, uh, here are all the good things, wonderful things this licensing regime is going to do, and the consumers who will pay the price don't even know what's happening or their interests are very diffuse, so they're not going to be there. Um, and so we're, we're trying to step into the shoes of the consumers and the workers and say, hey, consider these, these, things, these things too. Um, so, but, but on the second issue, for the state action doctrine, I think that's what it's really trying to do. It's trying to say, is this truly an action of the state, rather than the state, um, one of my favorite phrases from the case law, is casting a gauzy cloak of state authority on what is essentially private economic conduct. So I think that that's kind of the other factor. Is, is this truly state, the state's own, own action, rather than sort of devolving that to private actors who will, you know, often act in their own private interests? Well, I, I know you wanted to weigh in. I would just quickly respond that um, board members, you know, if you talk to them, they are really trying to do their best in the most um, instances. Maybe they are acting in their self-interest sometimes, and sometimes it's pretty blatant, like the North Carolina Dennis case. But I think a lot of these cases are really on the margins where they really think they're doing the right thing. And so it's, it's, it seems a little paternal for um, the federal government to say, should you be making these decisions? We don't think you should, and we're going to make it so you don't get state action immunity unless you do it the way we think you should do it. But, so that's that was all my point on that. Yeah, um, well, I think that um, uh, Sarah and, and Chairman O'Halloran have really covered uh, most of the ground here, but uh, the only thing I want to add is uh, when, I just want to make sure that when we're talking about occupational licensing regimes that I think Sarah alluded to this, that we're talking more broadly, not just limiting, in fact, the setting up credentials and saying if you don't get score X on your bar exam, you can't be an attorney, or, I mean, that's, uh, you know, in the sort of quintessential case, you can't be a hair braider if you don't have X number of, of uh, hours, uh, you know, though that that's one level, but uh, a lot of the work I did when I started at the, uh, at the FTC in the Office of Policy Planning was looking at uh, there's a host of state restraints on competition that maybe you can put them in the occupational licensing category, but, uh, you know, uh, attorney limits on attorney advertising. And we've, we've had uh, several Supreme Court cases on the First Amendment issues surrounding that, but there are still, to this day, uh, state bars that, that try to limit the ability of attorneys to advertise. Does that fit into occupational licensing? Not, I mean, you can maybe put it in that, but it, but it's, it's a, it's a different animal. Uh, minimum service requirements. There was an issue with that uh, when the internet uh, was burgeoning, and there were online real, uh, real estate providers. Uh, uh, the, the traditional real estate providers didn't like that. So what did they do? They tried to, in various states, set up minimum service requirements uh, that said. Well, if you're going to be a real estate agent, you've got to do house showings, and you have to do all these sort of things that are traditional. Real, well, why do they do that? To prevent disintermediation. Again, is that really occupational licensing? It wasn't about whether you can be a real estate agent or not. It was the regulations that are promulgated by these boards. North Carolina Dental, in fact, wasn't so much about who could be a dentist and who couldn't be. It was really, in, in some ways, about scope of practice. but. 
it had a lot to do. So the only thing I wanted to emphasize in this discussion, I think we touch on this, is in my view, most of the mischief that these boards do, I mean, I, I think that all the points that uh, Chairman Olhausen brought out as far as limiting economic mobility or labor mobility are really, really important. Those have to do with the regime itself to say you've got to have this qualification to be in this profession. Those are bad and they have their own anti-competitive effects, but I think the, to me the core mischief here is the, the regulations that these self-interested boards often promulgate. Um, not so much the restrictions of in the profession in and of itself. So that's the only thing I would, I would, I would add to that. So I want to come back to the federalism issue. I, I don't want us to forget that, but um, uh, Professor Cooper, if we can stay with you as a, both an economist and a lawyer, can you tell us what the empirics say? What are the, what's the empirical evidence on the effects of these restraints? Whether there, what are the potential costs and, um, you know, are there benefits for quality and other things? Yeah, uh, uh, thanks. Um, so the, most of these regulations, and, and I'm kind of painting in a broad brush stroke, but most of these regulations are justified typically uh, some kind of form of the, the following story that, you know, provide, uh, um, you know, consumers can't discern the quality ex ante of what provider X does. <coughs> provider X may be a dentist, they may be an ophthalmologist or an optometrist, they, they may be an interior designer, right? So you can't figure out beforehand the quality um, of, of the, the service, and so this leads to what economists refer to, uh, going back to George Akerlof's famous <coughs> article that's thrown out there all the time, is a, is a lemons market. Kind of the basic idea is that if you can't figure out quality ahead of time, consumers know that, they go into the marketplace and they discount. Um, they, they don't know if they're going to get a good provider or a bad provider, so they're only willing to pay a certain price that discounts that probability. And in the limit, and that's an important qualification, in the limit, um, the good providers completely exit the market because the, the equilibrium price that the consumer is willing to pay is not high enough to attract the good providers into the market, and so you end up with this unraveling. Uh, and that's often the, the, the horror story that's told to justify these regulations, that we need that the, the market would unravel into a lemons market if, if, if we didn't have this. Now, I do want to say in fairness that I think that, uh, you know, these arguments, and again, I think Chairman, Chairman Olhausen uh, alluded to this earlier, these arguments may have some purchase in when we talk about severe information asymmetries, doctors, um, I'm a lawyer, so of course I, I want to protect our guild, right? No, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, but, you know, there can be severe uh, uh, information asymmetries, uh, what economists sometimes would call credence good. If you go to a doctor and they recommend you get some kind of treatment and you get it and you get better, you have no idea if what they told you to do was the right thing or not, right? You know you got better, you don't know. Um, even if you can evaluate, uh, say, you know, you go to a doctor or, or maybe an attorney doing some sort of complex uh, transaction, maybe uh, custody, something where the stakes are high, or your uh, life in a in a capital murder case, uh, you may find out after the fact that oh, my lawyer or my doctor was no good because you you die or you um, uh, or or you go or you get the death penalty, right? Um, the, if the costs are really high in figuring out, I mean, maybe we think that okay, well, I can figure out that this wasn't uh, uh, that this was a bad service, and then reputation and marketplace can take effect, but. Um, when the costs of figuring that are really high, maybe that's where we want to step in and say, okay, well, we're going to set some kind of level. Now, we can talk later about should the state set that level or can we have private certification. I mean, those are other, those are certainly uh, areas of, of, of fair de debate. But although this argument may have some purchase for these severe as, uh, asymmetric information problems, it's 
harder to make that in kind of the archetypal case that I alluded to, that the, the hair braider or the interior designer. You know, you go to get your hair cut and you get a bad haircut, you can know that pretty quickly, right? I figured it out and the costs are relatively low, maybe leaving aside first dates or job interviews, right? Uh, but but for the, for the most, most part, um, these asymmetric information, uh, uh, theoretically, this idea of a lemons market for hair braiders or, or interior designers or barbers doesn't really hold much uh, water. Now, going to your, your question, so that's kind of the theory behind it. The, the empirics um, are pretty much suggest what, what you would think. I mean, the FTC did a lot of really uh, cutting-edge work back in the, in the 80s, uh, in mostly in optometry. Uh, to find that, and these weren't quite occupational licensing, but they had to do with what were called commercial practice restrictions when doc eye doctors were allowed to partner up with the lens crafters. In fact, just a little bit of trivia, Virginia, you still can. If you go to lens crafters in Pentagon City Mall, notice that you walk on the side door because the Dr. Smith can't be legally associated with lens crafters. Just, just, uh, uh, there's still some states that have these so-called two-door requirements, but um, there's been some, there was good evidence in the 80s that, that these restrictions and restrictions in advertising uh, that are promulgated by these boards don't, don't really do much. And there's also more modern literature, and, and I would commend every, everyone to look at, uh, 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 in President Obama's Council of Economic Advisory report from last year, um, it, uh, they do a great review of the literature, the old stuff and the new stuff, and you know uh, it's it's almost a hundred percent unanimous that there's no impact on quality from from these licensing. Uh, you know, no matter how how you uh, no matter how you measure it. I, so uh, and that these laws do tend to increase price. I think the price effect is a is a little. They they certainly limit mobility. They certainly limit entry. Um, the price effect is maybe not as robust as the, the lack of quality effect, but it's there. Um, the one thing I would, I would want to add is just because you see a licensing regime increases the level of quality, that doesn't necessarily mean it's good for consumers either because everyone doesn't need to buy a Mercedes, right? I mean, you could make a regulation that every car must have X, Y, you know, all these features, which means we're all paying $50,000 for a car, and it's a really nice car. And the same thing could be true if you could force everyone to go to an ophthalmologist who has spent, you know, five years board certified to get just your eye exam. When now, if anyone's been to get their eye exam recently, all you do is you stick your head in something with the, the receptionist does it for you and you, they, get your eye, they get your prescription really, really close and the eye doctor just kind of tweaks it a little bit, right? And uh, so, you know, so maybe it's higher quality if you go to the ophthalmologist, but should we all be forced into higher quality? Not... Uh, it, it shouldn't be the case. So, uh, so anyway, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. But that's that's kind of where we are. I think the empirics uh, say strongly that these these tend to limit competition and don't really provide any benefits for consumers. So, can I just I want to follow up on the price effects. I know in the Obama report, I believe they said something like the the cost to consumers was around a hundred. Uh, $100 billion. So can you talk a little bit more? You said you're not about the price Well, effects. I mean, there, there are a host of, again, I would commend anyone to look at that. They do a great literature review. I mean, there are a lot of studies. I think it's just hard to tease out price effects in this. I think that's the, 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 the main problem. I mean, um, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure where they got that, that, that number. I think it's, it's I, there's no doubt that these are costly to consumers. I would just say, as an economist and, you know, reviewing the literature, I just wouldn't think that the, the price effects literature is perhaps not as robust as the quantity, but it's there. I just wanted to be a, a little careful in what I'm saying. 
Um, not so much on the on the price effects, but on you. You're asking, you know, empirics. What, what do we What do we know? And, and I think one of the most interesting factors uh, or, or facts that I've seen is that only about 60 occupations are licensed in every state, but there are over 1,100 occupations that are licensed in at least one state. So to the extent that we are saying, well, other states, like for example. Uh, other states than North Carolina, uh, you could go to a regular, you know, mall kiosk tooth whitener. Were we seeing, you know, bad effects on, you know, consumers' health? The answer was was no, we, we weren't. Uh, and I think as you start to put your finger on this great disparity, so we have, you know, 60 where it seems like, you know, everybody kind of agrees these need to be licensed. And as you get further and further out, from that core area where you've got a lot of states agreeing, I think that's where you can at least put your finger on, like, there's probably not a really good health or safety or quality argument for having that, that license. I, I just want just real quick add in and to kind of echo that, and I think it goes back to what I said before, if we have to think about the mischief, where the mischief from these boards come from, it's maybe, do we agree that maybe dice, uh, dentists should be licensed? Maybe. I mean, I think that's a reasonable position. There, there are certainly arguments on their side. But even if we agree that dentists should be licensed and they may have to have some minimum quality, should they be able to say kiosks? And, and by the way, uh, you can't get your consumers, you can't get your teeth whitened anywhere else except in my office for a lot of money. Right? And <coughs> North Carolina, the North Carolina dental case is an excellent case to show why active supervision is a really good idea for these boards because that would never have happened if the if there was a disinterested state official that was actively supervising that board and and then we wouldn't have all this kerfuffle. <laughs> but um, I you know I I don't really have a lot of substantive things to add. I'd just like to. Um, credit my colleague Vic Doman, who's the current chair of the uh, NAG Antitrust Task Force and uh, works in the Tennessee AG's office, and he said whenever you start uh, wondering whether this um, occupational regulation should exist, just substitute lawyer for the, whatever occupation they're talking about, and then you'll probably be fine with it. So. <laughs> One, one other thing that I, I also wanted to mention, it's not necessarily a binary choice of licensing or no, or no licensing. There's also the issue of um, how strict a license do you need, and that's something the FTC's paid a lot of attention to, is allowing people like nurse practitioners or dental therapists, uh, uh, dental hygienists, to practice to the top, top of their license. So there was a case that preceded the North Carolina dental case um, called South Carolina Dental, and we settled uh, with uh, the, the dental board there. But the issue there was the state had said, you know, we've got a problem with getting dental care um, to poor children, right? Very poor dental health in, in the state. Um, and these kids just weren't getting, you know, basic, you know, cl cleaning and screening kind of stuff. So they rescinded the requirement that a dental hygienist had to operate under the, the immediate supervision of a dentist when providing that care. Um, so that the hygienists could go out into the poor schools and give these kids, you know, some basic dental care. And the dentists went and reinstituted that requirement as an emergency regulation in their, uh, you know, it was like 
could it be clear the state wanted something different? But the thing there was the degree of licensing, right? So I wasn't saying, well, there shouldn't be any licensing. It was allowing them to practice. And we've done a lot of that. Um, one of the projects that I worked on when I headed up the Office of Policy Planning was allowing nurse practitioners to practice in big box stores like the CVS, the uh, Target, you know, th things like that, where you really are expanding access to people who, you know, couldn't take time off from work, may not have health insurance. Uh, they, uh, you know, on Saturday morning, their kids got the, the eye, I'm a mother of four, I've seen all of this, you know. It's Christmas Eve and you've got an eye infection. Oh, you know, the, the doctor's closed. You know, you, you want to be, you don't want to go to the emergency room. You want uh, to have this kind of care. And I think that's the other thing is expanding access to services and to care. It's most acute, I think, in the, in the health space. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to be moving into a world of telemedicine, right? There's enormous benefits to be had for that. But we're going to have to get the licensing right to allow that to, to happen, to allow the nurse practitioner to be with the patient when the doctor is, you know, diagnosing re remotely. So, it's, uh, so it's, not, it's not a binary thing either. Well, let's come back to the federalism issue, and um, Professor Cooper, I'd like to hear from you. What role is there for, or if any, for federal antitrust law, and, and, and uh, what about federalism? Uh, um, uh, that's a good question, since this is sponsored by the Federal Society, right? Um, so uh, uh, anyway, um, yeah, and I think that, that again, uh, we, we've already started at least touch on this, but uh, the, st the state action doctrine, and, and may, uh, I imagine if people were interested in this uh, uh, in, in, in our panel, you, you all may, many of you are already steeped in this, so I apologize, apologize if this is just a, uh, a review, but the, the state action doctrine is really kind of a compromise. What the Supreme Court has crafted is a compromise between the national policy in favor of free market competition as evidenced in the, the federal antitrust laws and Federalism, which is a, uh, obviously part of our system, part of our constitution. So, um, what of the what of the state action doctrine? Uh, uh, in how how do you you, you apply it? Uh, Sarah actually alluded to this already when she talked about North Carolina Dental. Is that there are two there are two prongs. There's what's called clear articulation. Um, uh, the 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 action that. You know, so if you start with say a, a private uh, with private actors uh, or, or or a board, uh, or is what they're doing is it is it, uh, it is it pursuant to a clearly articulated policy to uh, plant competition, where some of the litigation issues come in here and, and the FTC with Phoebe Putney and, and uh, you know there there have been some uh, is what is how specific does the policy have to be? Uh, do you have to does it have to be uh, do you have to be acting to, uh, you know, does, does the state have to spell it out precisely? And if you and if you go beyond that, you're in trouble. Or uh, I think the, the, it's generally kind of this idea of reasonably foreseeable, but there's always some, uh, which was uh, the Supreme Court said an omni. But but uh, it has to be. You can't just say, well, the state said I can regulate, so then I can do anything, right? There, you 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 have to be. There has to be a state policy that says we're going to displace competition. Um, and then there's the active supervision prong, which again is is something that the Supreme Court hasn't really elucidated what that means in, in detail. They've they've said a lot about what active supervision means, they, or I'm sorry, what clear articulation means, but not a lot about what active supervision means. Though North Carolina Dental was a landmark case because it said that self-interested boards would be subject to this prong. Why? So going back before uh, before North Carolina Dental. 
it, it was clear that municipalities were subject only to this clear articulation. So if a town, town of Halley, uh, decides to limit competition, garbage, uh, uh, who, can, who can pick up garbage, well, uh, we don't need to have someone supervising the municipality, but the municipality is not sovereign, so they don't, get the, they don't have the benefits of federalism. But if they're acting pursuant to a state policy, that's, that's okay. That's enough. Um, until North Carolina Dental rolled around, it was unclear whether the self-interested boards would call, be more like a town and just be acting. If you're acting pursuant to a state policy, that's enough. Then you, you just go out and, and, and license and regulate how you want to. Um, or would they be considered more like private actors? And what was the landmark? And, and something, again, at the Federal Trade Commission has really been on the forefront of trying to push this and find cases that, uh, uh, to, to test this proposition, uh, what was, what was uh, revolutionary about North Carolina Dental if they said, yes, if there is a board uh, that is composed of self-interested actors who, uh, a decisive majority who, who uh, um, control, uh, control the, who are active market participants, then we're just going to treat them like a private cartel, like a trade association. And therefore, they're going to be subject to, um, uh, subject to, to active, um, to, to, to active supervision. So, um, that's kind of where we are now. I mean, that's how we, the, 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 the Supreme Court has, has made, has made that, uh, made that balance. And now with North Carolina Dental, and why in many ways we're having this panel, and why uh, I've had, been on several panels with Fair about this, is that it, that it has, Ray, opened up a whole Pandora's box of federalism issues. So if we have active supervision, well, how, how are states going to implement this? You know, when, when are they allowed to regulate profe professions? This was front and center in the dissent in North Carolina uh, dental written by Justice Alito about, you know, why can't, essentially, I'm obviously grossly paraphrasing, but, you know, this is a state issue. States have regulated professions forever, and if they want to say uh, teeth whitening uh, is the practice of, dent of dentistry, let them do that and let them allow dentists, practicing dentists, comprise a board uh, to do that. Uh, some of the, the boundaries, so, so that's going to be one issue, uh, you know, what, what does it mean to be actively supervised and how expensive is that going to be for states? Is that going to mean they're going to have to dismantle uh, some, of their, uh, some, of, some of these licensing regimes? Uh, another issue, uh, something I've written about, kind of shameless plug, uh, is, is, you know, what is an antitrust inquiry going to look like, because we haven't had that yet, when a board is stripped of immunity? So let's say that you actually litigated the substance of North Carolina Dental and you had to do it under a rule of reason. Well, we know from National Society of Professional Engineers and other cases that what do you, you don't let non-competition concerns into a rule of reason inquiry. So I say, well, I wanted to regulate the, the use of teeth whitening because I was concerned that consumers were going to be harmed because they'd have too much fluoride or too much oxida oxidation or whatever. They'd burn their gums, whatever it is. Well... All that may be true, but that's typically going to be, that would not be a justification, just like the engineers can't say, we're worried that bridges are going to fall down. The dentists can't say, we're worried that consumers are going to burn their gums. So that's, I think, an unanswered, a very unanswered question as to, to what sort of defenses, once you've been stripped and you have to litigate the substance of this, what are the defenses left for the board? Uh, I've argued that there's, there, I mean, it could be de facto per se, in which case it would lead to what's called antitrust preemption, but that's a, it's another, uh, 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 another, another issue. But I'll, I'll just kind of leave it there. Well, I mean, not only would, I mean, boards are required to follow state law. So where is, where does that fit into their defense under a full-blown rule of reason analysis is the board says, 
I was following the law that I am required to follow, and you're not letting me put on a defense here. Um, and I do have a, a big problem with National Society of Professional Engineers um, saying that, I mean, if the legislature has made the decision to restrict competition for health and safety reasons, um, it's not, it wasn't the board's decision. It was the state legislature's decision. So why are you making the board defend the legislature's decision when they had no uh, discretion whether or not to follow that that rule? So it's it's a very very complicated issue, and it's 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 really unfair to to state boards and state board members to have to um, defend that. And you know, since incidental, there's been a lot of pushback from individual board members who are no longer willing to serve on state boards because they're individually liable for treble damages if, if they're individually sued, like they were in the case that I was involved in. Um, and some states' constitutions don't allow them to indemnify board members. So they're, they're not getting paid to do this. They're doing this as a public service. And then they're going to be hauled into court and, and made to defend a full-blown rule of reason antitrust case with one hand tied behind their back. And um, it's, it's not a workable situation at all. Um, I I didn't know whether you wanted to get into the the bill. Yeah, I mean, so Can, one... Oh, I'm sorry, I, I just wanted, since we were talking about federalism, I just had one thing, and I think it fits in really well with what i completely um, sympathetic with what Sarah's saying. And, you know, if we go back to the history of the state action doctrine, a lot of it was motivated by a desire to... So Lochner, of course, said you can't use substantive due process. Um, so then we'll say, well, let's use the antitrust laws to go after state and, and so in some ways, um, in, in the state, not in some ways, in, in actually very real ways, the state action doctrine was a, another way to cabin an attack on state state sovereignty in, in, in that respect. So now with North Carolina, and what you're saying is we think about what a rule of reason looks like, we would be back to, and you can say whether it's good or bad. I mean, there are certainly arguments whether, you know, there are, I have members of my faculty who say that, 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 that uh, you know, that Lochner, uh, was was there's nothing wrong with the Lochner era, right? And um, so, what? But what we would have, we would have a rule of reason inquiry with a federal court reweighing a state's uh, a state legislature's decision to say we think the scope of dentistry should be X, or we think health and safety reasons should. And so, this is where I think it does raise a host of federalism issues and how we would actually deal with the underlying. Because state action is one thing, but once we get past that, we then have an antitrust case. How do we deal with that and still respect federalism, I think, is a really big question. Though, you know, just to go, go back to the, the fundamentals of the state action doctrine, if the state has clearly articulated that tooth whitening is the practice of dentistry, right, and the board just promulgates that, that meets the state action doctrine, right? That, you, they, they satisfy that, that defense, yeah. right? So, because one of the things I really... Uh, the way I try to think about how this works is uh, going back to what the Supreme Court has said over time, which is this is supposed to assign political responsibility, not obscure it, right? So if the state itself is saying, well, we think that this common practice that in every other state uh, is you can go to the drugstore and just get it and do it yourself, but we're going to say it's, you know, it's uh, the practice of dentistry in our state, and people don't like it. Well, they can say to the legislature, "What are you doing?" Right? We don't we don't like that. Rather than, well, this murky thing, some board member decided on on, on his own. So, I mean, if the state has, that's what clear articulation is, right? So, 
No, no, I think that I, I think that's right. I mean, you'd still have the act of supervision. Uh, right, if you have the the. If you have the self self interested board, but right. your point is well taken that maybe there's even nothing to actively like. So if the facts of North Carolina and Dental were different and they didn't give the board any discretion to expand or to uh, contract the scope of what the practice of dentistry was, we perhaps would ha would not have had North Carolina Dental. Um, because they'd say I, I had I didn't really take an action as you said I just said they they said the scope of dentistry included teeth whitening and mall kiosks if you could imagine a statute that said that then there's no discretion the legislature did it not the board and I, I think that's a that's a that's a fair point um, it would only this would apply once we get to board when there's board discretion and that discretion violates the antitrust laws and it's unsupervised discretion. And then we would have to. Then they would try to defend it, as Sarah says. How do we get into that? If they either say we can't bring in health and safety, or if we bring in health and safety, then it's kind of back to Lochner in a way, where you have a federal judiciary sitting and saying, "Well, we would balance health and safety against competition a different way than than you did." But but yeah, I mean, your point's absolutely right. So Sarah, you mentioned the bill. There's a, a recent proposal, the uh, the Restoring Board Immunity Act, which. Um, which is intended to take these various concerns into account. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts um, from the panelists on, on this bill. So how much time do we have left? Because I have uh, a, lot, <laughs> a lot of concerns. About 10 minutes left. <laughs> um, so the bill summary states that there is concern that the NC Dental decision eliminated a measure of state sovereignty. Um, but this bill gives no deference to principles of federalism or to state sovereignty. Instead, it criticizes states like Maryland, Tennessee, Montana, and Mississippi that actually managed to get their state legislatures to pass an active supervision statute this year by stating that they have only established a layer of bureaucratic oversight that merely monitors board actions for consistency with state licensing laws. Well, so what is the purpose of active supervision? It is to ensure that a board's actions are consistent with the state's licensing laws. That's exactly what they're supposed to do. It is to ensure that members of a state regulatory board or private individuals participating in a state program are following clearly articulated and affirmatively expressed state statutes authorizing that activity. It is not to substitute the active supervisor or a judge's opinion of what the licensing regime should be for the state legislature's decision. And as a matter of fact, this bill would subject state boards to a much higher standard to receive state action immunity than private trade associations or other private citizens acting pursuant to state policy would have to meet under the current case law of Patrick v. Burgett, Tycor, and NC Dental. So not only does the bill's summary criticize the states that have passed state action statutes, but the bill itself will invalidate those statutes. The bill's requirements go significantly beyond NC Dental's requirements by mandating that only board actions complying with the policy set out in Section 5B will receive immunity, or in other words, board actions that use the least restrictive alternative will be immunized. And as I said earlier, that's not a requirement of NC Dental. There also seem to be some significant constitutional problems with the bill's requirements that state courts cannot give any deference to the state legislature or presume that the legislature determined that the restriction was necessary to prevent harm to the public health, safety, or welfare. This again allows a state court judge to substitute its judgment for the decision of the state legislature and is contrary to antitrust precedent that the legislature is presumed to have considered the anti-competitive effects of the statutes and passed them anyway. 
In addition, there appears to be an extra requirement that the state act in good faith to implement licensing reforms in order to receive immunity for any board decision. The board also changes the standard of review to clear and convincing evidence and puts the burden on the board to show that its actions not only were to protect an identified important government interest, but that the restriction was substantially related to that identified government interest and that it used the least restrictive alternative and that it acted in good faith. So there's a lot of standards there. The plaintiff only has to make out a prima facie case that the restriction substantially burdened his ability to engage in that profession to switch the burden to the board to justify its behavior. And the term substantially burdened is not defined and seems like it would cover a potentially any restriction that a board imposes. The board must then defend its actions without the court being allowed to defer to the legislature or presume that the legislature intended to protect the public from harm or that the restriction is substantially related to that presumed harm. And like I said before, it's kind of like being asked to fight with one arm tied behind your back. Um, and as I can tell you from doing this, getting just one case against a board to summary judgment can cost several hundred thousand dollars. So efforts like this bill will, that will increase litigation against boards will significantly add to state budgets. So uh, not to be, I don't want to be too snarky about it, but I think this bill highlights a common problem when the federal government tries to mandate state <laughs> behavior. It, it really doesn't have any idea how difficult and time consuming and expensive it is to implement these big ideas into 51 existing and different state governments and um, how many revisions to state codes would be required to do so because this uh, would conflict with wide swaths of uh, the Virginia Code, I can tell you that. The, not just the Administrative Process Act but all the enabling acts uh, for the state boards itself. Um, at a minimum, this bill creates an unfunded federal mandate for states to create an Office of Supervision of Occupational Boards or restructure its judicial review procedures and um, like I said, it will cause extensive revisions to state codes. At the end of the day, this bill is really unworkable for states to implement, which leaves the states without any antitrust immunity for state board's decisions if the bill passes. Professor Cooper? Um, oh, uh, do I have any, uh, do you have any thoughts? thoughts? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Um, um, well, my, you know, I, I would consider um, it a great summary and I, I can completely understand uh, and I, I'm not super familiar with the bill I've looked at it and I've, I've um, um, I thought a little about it the thing that you know I, I certainly think you know the, the, the part of this bill that I, I, I do like is is that the, this idea of changing the challenges to intermediate scrutiny uh, uh, because you know with a rational basis you which is how, how, how it's challenged you know you challenge a state law on a rational basis you uh, these the you can the it's basically the the state wins. I mean not always. I mean IJ has been been successful in, in in some cases, but the deck is stacked against. I, I like the, the the that notion of, of intermediate scrutiny type analysis where the state actually can't just say uh, lemons market. See the legislature said lemons market, so we win. Exaggeration a little bit, but but it's not too too much of an exaggeration, and and so actually having to to to, to maybe justify these. I mean that's just me as, as kind of an, an economist thinking that 
that some of these licensing laws are bad, but I understand the federalism, um, uh, certainly understand the, uh, the, the, the federalism point. You know, the only thing I would say is, is kind of beyond just the, the, um, uh, the substance of this is it is amazing to think, I think when I, when I left this place here and went over to the FTC and started working in the Office of Policy Planning and working a lot on state restraints and competition to think here we fast forward, you know, many years, but uh, here we've got a Democratic administration releasing a very influential report that's fairly critical uh, you know, last year, uh, not this year. I know that there's not a Democratic administration. I see a few. Hey, last year, there's a uh, Democratic administration releasing a fairly influential report on occupational licensing that's, you know, somewhat critical, or at least pointing out that there's a lot of improvement here. And then we have, uh, you know, three influential Republican senators introducing a bill uh, that takes serious aim, aim at the problem. Uh, I think the fact that it's on a national stage now, and I think that there's this kind of bipartisan consensus that this is, things have gone awry <coughs> at the state level with this occupational licensing and something needs to be done. I'm not exactly sure what, um, I'm an antitrust lawyer, so I like antitrust as a tool, but I think there's a lot of things to like in, 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 in this bill, and we'll just stay tuned. I guess that's kind of where I am with it. Well, I mean, certainly the bill, the goals of the bill are very consistent with what the FTC has been doing, both on the policy front and uh, on, on an enforcement front. And, and one of the things that, that I'm glad to see, it does preserve the FTC's Section 5 authority, so, uh, which we, we don't get treble, uh, treble damages. Uh, you know, our cases are, don't seek money uh, in, in, the, in these situations, because I do uh, you know, want to preserve you know, some antitrust oversight, but um, you know, some sensitivity to some of the difficulties it creates for the states. But, but I do think, you know, James, you you've have put your finger on it. I mean, I, I think that it's a signal of the fact that a lot of people are seeing that this is, this is a problem. This is a problem for consumers. This is a problem for workers. It's a problem for the economy. So we need to figure out how do we fix this. Um, I'll add that the um, parts of the bill that um, Senators Cruz and Lee and Sass just um, introduced uh, ha are from a model bill, and I'm blanking on the name, um, by um, an organization with the certification, the, the least restrictive alternative, the list to most restrictive being licensing. Um, and um, several states actually did introduce a bill that was based on that model bill this past session. And as far as I know, not a single one passed. So I mean, state legislatures are looking at these issues. They're just not. They're just not there yet. Um, and and uh, included in the bill was also mandatory sunset review for a certain number of boards every year and um, and things like that. So I think they're they're moving, but you can't get states to move very fast. <laughs> it's how many years now since the incidental decision, and most of the states still don't have an active supervision bill including Virginia, much to my chagrin, so. Well, Lisa and I have a couple other questions, but we want to make sure we save time for, the, for your questions. So um, we have a, yes, I see one in the back, and we have a mic that's going to go around. Uh, perhaps if you just introduce yourself and, and, and where are you from? Thanks, Maureen, for the shout-out earlier. Sure. Um, <laughs> Clark Neely, formerly with the Institute for Justice, now with Cato. <clears throat> I guess I want to start by saying to Sarah, um, having worked in this area for about 20 years, I want to assure you that you have no more fear of this bill getting enacted than a herd of unicorns stripping the Virginia countryside bare. Don't worry about that. Um, but, but in all seriousness, I think there's the real tension here 
is a failure of the states to get their own houses in order. As James mentioned, virtually everybody now agrees that, that over occupational overregulation is a huge problem. And then right down at the micro level, we can talk about just abuse after abuse. You really do have to have a college degree to do interior design in Florida. It really is illegal to sell floral arrangements in Louisiana without a license. And I could go on and on. Um, I don't want to pick, pick on Virginia, but I will. Virginia is one of the last two or three states in the country that requires a funeral director's license to sell caskets. Um, you have a certificate of need requirement for medical devices. I could go on, but I won't. As the failure of the states to get their own houses in order, and the failure to evince any interest in getting their houses in order on this front continues, I think it's, as a practical matter, it is just going to invite federal attention that you may not want. So the question is, what has the state of Virginia done um, that has been sort of the most significant step in getting its house in order when it comes to occupational overregulation? First of all, it's the Commonwealth of Virginia. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, I, you know, I'm not... I'm not 100% sure that we've done anything that's that's noteworthy in that regard. I think that um, uh, we've we've had an active supervision bill that's been introduced the last two years in the legislature. One of them went pretty far this year, but still didn't pass. Um, we, like I said, we had one of those model bills that required sunset review. I will say that I think that. Um, uh, saying that licensing is a huge problem in this country sometimes seems to me a little bit of an overstatement because I don't think, I mean, you, 60 occupations are licensed in every state. I think we can all agree that maybe those 60 occupations should be licensed in every state. So let's look at, let's pick the outliers like funeral, uh, well, not funeral directors because they are licensed, but hair braiders and floral designers and work on that. and and. Um, Stop making the people that are in the professions that really should be licensed feel threatened um, that they're going to they're going to face some big antitrust cases. And when you say I'm curious uh, that they should be licensed, wh what is that based on? Well, I, I think that I, I mean personally, I don't want to go up in an airplane that's not flown by a licensed pilot. I don't want to be operated on by a someone who's not a licensed uh, doctor. I don't want to necessarily have a, a veneer put on by a person who's not a licensed dentist. So I think that there's, there's occupations where we can all agree that there needs to be some form of licensing. Um, to, the tort system is not adequate to protect <laughs> against uh, unlicensed uh, con artists who are practicing in the field. And I think that those are legitimate public health and safety um, issues that should be recognized. So what do we do with the empirics that say that uh, these kind of licensing don't actually affect quality even for professionals like dentists or lawyers? Well, I think those professions do have um, extensive um, self-regulation. There, there's um, standard of care cases all the time at the Board of Medicine. There's um, people that lose their license to practice law all the time. Are they perfect? No, but um, I think that doctors are the best people to determine whether the standard of care of other doctors is, is was adequate. Um, I don't think that bureaucrats are necessarily the right people to determine that. What, I, what about consumers? I mean, shouldn't there be some choice for the consumers? Some consumers may want a higher standard of care, and you know, as James was saying, there's a cost trade-off, right? Some some consumers in certain in certain areas may be willing to accept. Um, a non-certified, you know, if the risk is relatively low and shouldn't they have the ability to make those choices? 
Well, that's that's a fairly affluent consumer who can determine those things. What about the the consumer who doesn't have enough money and is forced to choose the lower price person, the the lower quality person because they can't afford anybody else? I mean, shouldn't there be some minimum standards? Well, but but I think when we we frame it that way, you kind of cut out the consumer who can't afford the Cadillac care and just isn't getting any any care, right? And and we, we need we need to be sensitive to that. Um, I also think we need to to keep in mind. I think there's good evidence about the fact that competition leads to better quality, right? And so when we see regimes that are cutting off real competition, then we, we, should, we should be concerned. And I think that was the professional engineer's case, right? Yeah. It was saying, oh, no, competition is going to lead to worse quality, right, mm -hmm. because they're going to compete to have lower prices, and so you know, the bridge is going to fall down. But I think we have pretty strong evidence at this point that a, the competition ha has good uh, leads to better quality. In fact, uh, James, you mentioned the Phoebe Putney case. Yeah. Uh, where the FTC won a, uh, a victory in the Supreme Court but couldn't stop the, uh, the merger to monopoly from happening. Mm -hmm. And the state, you know, was kind of saying, well, we'll oversee it. It'll be, you know, don't worry. It'll be, it'll be okay. Uh, and so I was like, well, that's a testable proposition. So I had um, our economists take a look. And we have some evidence suggesting quality has gone down uh, in that. So that's, that's the other thing that, you know, competition will – kind of give the array to consumers of choice, quality, you know, all, all those things. I think we, we all agree on that. But I, but I also think, so we're looking at the licensed or not licensed, but also expand what is the profession, and that, that's a problem. And one of the things, the way I kind of got involved in this uh, early on was the issue of whether you needed to be an attorney to do a real estate closing. Mm -hmm. And most states, you do not. You do not need to be an attorney. Virginia is a state where you, it's not required. Right. You, we've got uh, a license. Not a, yes, right, yes. right no. <laughs> uh, but, um, but as you started to look at these statutes, it said, what is the practice of law? Uh, some of them were hilarious. So my favorite was, it is what attorneys typically do. <laughs> I was like, well, then maybe you could say golf is the practice of law. Maybe you could say, you know, like, yeah, they were like trying to extend, like, it, when you, when you like, mailed a letter from, right. for a real estate closing, you, know, you put it in the mail to send the documents. Oh, that had to be a lawyer who did that. Well, how was that, how was that, you know, sensible kind of thing? So, um, I, I would just, I mean, I, the, the idea that, that um, maybe we want, because of information asymmetries, maybe we want some sort of, um, <clears throat> uh, some way for consumers to figure out whether you've met some minimum qualifications, that's fine and that, that makes sense and certainly in some areas. But I think one of the, one of the issues is, is it's unclear why the state needs to be that entity that does it. So, I mean, there could be private certification, uh, you know, I, and, and, you know, maybe not for doctors, I don't know, but it's unclear whether you couldn't just say get rid of the Virginia Board of Medicine and so and replace it with a private certification regime that's made up with doctors, you know, very high professionals and say, you know, and a doctor could hang out a shingle and say, I have, have been, I'm part, I've been certified by the, you know, private board of, of you know, kind of like the good housing housekeeping seal of approval, which I say kind of jokingly, but as I understand it, I think before the FDA, I mean, that was in large ways how drugs were, you know, that the, the, there were private certification regimes. And so, so one thing I think we need to think about is whether it needs, 
we may need some way to get out of the asymmetric information problem, but it's unclear even if we say, yeah, we need something, uh, to, that it has to be uh, government rather than, than, than private. And, and I just think that's something we need to, to think about as, as, as we go down this path. I think you're just switching one self-protectionist regime for the other. I don't think, whenever you're going to have doctors deciding what the qualifications are for doctors and deciding who can't be a doctor, you're going to have situations where you're probably um, doing some displacing competition. Yeah. I don't want to come right out and say any competitive things. <laughs> but, um, and, and so, and why is a private certification company better than a a, gov a state government to determine it, that. It would allow well, consumer choice. Entry, right? yeah. I, mean, I mean, yeah, I, mean, well, I think that everyone jumped in. Entry. It's just going to be a different barrier. Well, know? I think that the, there's a case, uh, Sacker, I'm probably mispronouncing it, where they had to do if the ophthalmologists come out and say this sort of uh, keratometry, you know, the, the, the laser surgery, if this is, you know, they say this, this method is no good. And so somebody sued and said, well, that's a barrier to entry. And the Seventh Circuit said, I think it was uh, Easterbrook, could be wrong, but it said, no, no, this is basically free speech. And, and maybe one organization has a bigger imprimatur, but it just because you, you say, but consumers can choose. So yes, I still may want to undergo this procedure, even if the uh, Academy of Ophthalmologists have said it's, it's, not, it's not ready for prime time. But I guess the idea is consumers could sort in. It wouldn't be illegal to practice if you don't have the certification, just the private certification would exist. And they wouldn't have the state power to. That would be the, to me, the biggest difference. So I think one thing here is we're starting with the hardest case first. When there's so <laughs> many other things where you can say, yes, for you know makeup artists and hairstylists and florists, uh, you know social media or reviews or Better Business Bureau can provide that function. We don't need the state saying, man, that is an ugly throw pillow. So <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, you kind of think about, like, restaurants, right? So we have the health department that comes and makes sure it's clean in the back, right, where the consumer isn't going and, you know, checking. But we don't have them saying, does the food taste good, right? You know, that we people rely on word of mouth and reviews and, and things like that. And I think there's a whole host of those things that can address, um, you know, let's, like, let's start with low-hanging fruit, right. <laughs> fruit first. Uh, and then... Also, for, to, you know, the, the great thing about states is the laboratory of the states. And you can see, you know, the quality stuff where, you know, in, in some states where you have the nurse practitioners are able to practice. You know, you can kind of say, well, how, you know, what's the effect on quality there? What's the effect on, you know, uh, uh, there versus um, saying, well, let's, let's uh, visualize, like, you know, the, the, um, the perfect licensing regime to, be, to begin with. We can kind of look at. What, what's already working, and, and then go, go after. I mean, I, I, the health ones are, I think, are very appealing uh, because uh, there is such a need, such a need there that's that's being unmet. Um, but I'm not sure I'm ready to say that doctors who perform brain surgery shouldn't shouldn't be licensed. And, I, and that is not the focus of the FTC's Economic Liberty <laughs> Task Force, certainly. But should you be able to go to the nurse practitioner to get your kid's flu shot? The answer is pretty clearly yes, that would probably be a very good thing. So. so we only have about five minutes left. I want to make sure we have time for some other questions. Any other questions in the room? Yes, we have one over here. Uh, the mic's coming to you. <coughs> oh, 
Hi, thank you. My name is <clears throat> excuse me, Todd Wiggins, and my question has uh, to do with small businesses because uh, the industry seems to be blowing up the small business um, co-working space industry, such as WeWork and those kinds of uh, shared spaces where so many new businesses are coming in that are unregulated, uh, unlicensed probably. It, it, number one, I'm sure that's a good place to solicit for services if you're a lawyer, uh, if you're starting off. But secondly, what about um, those organizations? If there should be any regulations for who they accept to work, to be in those co-working spaces. Should they be talking to attorneys about what they would consider acceptable businesses for their spaces? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would say. I'm not a regulator, um, so I'll, right. I'll <laughs> well, I, I certainly wouldn't want to say that uh, there should be regulation put on the co-working space, right? Where they need to have a, you know, some sort of government oversight saying, well, you, you can only accept these these kinds of business. I think reputation is going to be part of it, right? So if you've if you create a reputation for being a place where you've got, um, you know, unethical businesses or, or problematic businesses, I think your reputation is going to suffer and other people won't want to, won't want to go there. So I think there's, there's a market mechanism that I would imagine, I haven't studied this, I'm just theorizing, uh, would, would operate. Much like, you know, who rents uh, in an office park or, you know, uh, other commercial buildings, I imagine, that would be, have a similar dynamic. I, I would just throw out there that I think before you have any kind of economic regulation, you want to have an identifiable market failure, you know, as a necessary but not sufficient cause. And then you still need to do a cost-benefit analysis. Is this regulation going to, you know, actually solve the problem and not be worse? Any other questions? We have a few minutes left. Yes. Yeah. I'm Melissa O'Donnell. Hi. Yeah. I'm Melissa O'Donnell. My question is related to how the bill fits into the, the kind of larger framework of the state action doctrine as it's interpreted by courts. First of all, is, is it completely clear that the bill would displace the two-prong test that the Supreme Court has announced in North Carolina Dental and other cases. And number two, what would happen when a board, a self-interested board, is promulgating a rule related to something that is not is not licensure, as, as Professor Cooper was saying earlier? Like if it if it's if it's not if the rule that is promulgated is not related to licensure per se, but something else, would would the, how would this law fit in? Are you talking about the the bill that was just introduced in Congress? Yes. Um, <laughs> well, I think the, the fundamental holding of incidental stands where a state board would need to meet both prongs of MidCal to get um, state action immunity. So they would still need to have be following a clearly articulated state policy to displace competition. They'd also need to have active supervision, but the way active supervision is gained has, would be changed through this uh, bill, and you would have to, to do all the things that the bill says you have to do in order to have active supervision rather than the way incidental laid out active supervision. Um, and I, I think that the, 
all the things you have to do to get active supervision are the problematic parts of the of the bill. Um, as far as the rule, it um, the board is hampered on what it can do um, by the the clear articulation arm. So they um, in 2004 the FTC actually sued. Um, the funeral board uh, in Virginia for um, having a regulation that was not um, enabled by any um, corresponding state legislation. And the funeral board, um, my, it was actually my old section at the FTC that <laughs> sued me right after I'd left. But um, <laughs> they just wanted to see more of you. Really <laughs> but I, I actually agreed with the FTC on that one, and we quickly withdrew the uh, the offending regulation and settled, and it was very, all very neat and tidy and 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 done. So I, I hope that answers your question. I, I would, I mean, at least just quick my my reading of the bill, and it's uh, is that. You know, first, I don't think, I think it only covers the licensure decision. It's a, it seems that there's a, you know, Section 4A, I think, says, suggests that it's about the, not the other, the other type of regulations. And there are also two paths. So one path to immunity under this bill, however limited it may be, just to um, licensure decisions. Uh, one path is the active supervision path. The other path is setting up a private right of action that allows consumers to challenge, or not consumers, I'm sorry, aggrieved um, workers to, or people who've been, I can't practice my profession because of this law, um, to challenge under intermediate scrutiny, which would have, would, would essentially completely displace the, the, the mid-cow type of analysis for uh, an intermediate scrutiny type of analysis. So that, that's my reading of it. I don't, I don't claim to be, be an expert there, but uh, that, that's at least my take. All right, well, we're out of time, so please join me in thanking our um, excellent panelists.